Breaking news events usually arrive quickly. That's part of the name, after all. But they don't often last for weeks or months. The coronavirus pandemic smashes all of those conventions. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, a conversation with Therese Bottomley, the editor of the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Bottomley first started at the Oregonian in 1983. She's played a significant leadership role at the paper for decades, helping oversee coverage from the Thurston High School shooting to the Malheur Refuge takeover and everything in between. She says this news event is different for many reasons, and the entire newsroom has never had to change its operations so dramatically. We talked about the unique challenges we face amid this pandemic, the financial crises facing newsrooms across this country, and why government transparency should be so important, especially during this period of uncertainty. Later on, we talk about her long career in journalism. Thank you for taking time out of the crazy schedule to chat. I appreciate it. Happy to join you. Uh, describe your workplace uh, to listeners. Where, where are you working right now? I am working in my dining room. My dining room table is a ad hoc desk where I have a big monitor. I have my laptop. I have my iPad and I have my iPhone. What's it like being in charge of a newsroom right now during this pandemic? Well, the very first Monday after the uh, first case was announced on Friday, uh, February 28th, we had a stand-up meeting in the newsroom, as you might recall, and try to remind everybody that this is one of those unusual stories where we are living it along with our readers. So our questions are questions that readers probably will have, and that can really inform our, our journalism. And We've tried to really do three things, and that is keep up with the news hourly, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, by the minute. Do some deeper accountability reporting, especially around uh, availability of hospital beds and preparedness and all those sorts of things that are so crucial as we move to this next phase of the pandemic. But then also very much, I call it daily life, where it's like, how can we be helpful to people as they navigate this uncharted territory? And how can we, uh, just as we're confronting these issues of how do I set up my home office on my dining room table? And right. what do I do about um, going out to the grocery store? Can I go do this or can I do that? And so that's been sort of the the uh, multi-pronged approach. And what we did when we saw where this was going was quickly reorganize the entire newsroom around the coronavirus and then, of course, you know, we've now been out of the newsroom for one entire work week, and mm-hmm. uh, that's a different experience for all of us. Being the top editor at the state's largest media organization carries a large burden of responsibility in normal times, but um, beyond having a team of reporters and editors who are working their tails off out there, how do you feel that heaviness and how do you deal with the stress? Well, I really have encouraged from the beginning um, communicating directly with readers about this. And so, you know, I I wrote a column about it. I um, wrote, you know, a letter from the publisher and me um, to try to communicate to people uh, what we were doing to to keep them informed and how important uh, how important it, it is to us to have really reliable 
thorough, timely information. And then we, as a company, launched a text alert service, and we launched it on a Friday, and um, everybody was so busy, I just said, I will take it for, for the beginning, and I will be the, vo- the voice behind the texts to get this going, because there's a need for it, and I'm certainly not going to ask anybody else to put more work on their plate. And so that was really helpful to me because we have more than 9,000 people signed up for that now. And people text back their questions, their concerns, their worries, their tips. And it's just been a really good way for me as an editor, isolated like everyone else, to get a sense of, uh, of, you know, finger on the pulse, as it were, of the community and what, what people's concerns are. Yeah, we very much feel, and we've tried to communicate this, that we absolutely have a vital role here. We are a lifeline for people in terms of bringing them information, but that the most important thing is credible and authoritative information, not the rumor of the day. You know, we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can to inform, uh, but not inflame. When you're texting the Oregonian, you have a, a direct line to the top boss. <laughs> what what do <laughs> what do readers want to know right now? Um, what are what kind of concerns um, are they texting about, or ask? What kind of questions do they have that you're responding to? Well, a lot of it is around the testing and the lack of availability. Um, people who have a fever, or they have a family member who has been ill for some time and the frustration at their inability to get a test. So many of them have said, I've, I've talked to my doctor. My doctor says, yes, you probably have it, or your daughter probably has it, but there's no test right now, or you know, it's not um, available right now, or you're not ill enough to warrant the test. We need to keep them for people who are more ill. So it's a, it's a worry for people, but it's also a reminder that uh, you know, for the vast majority of people, who get this virus, they um, perhaps will not have to have medical care. They um, may have mild to moderate symptoms, um, and that uh, the smaller minority of people, especially in the higher age groups, especially over 80 or with people with underlying health conditions, those are the ones where it's quite concerning and where you see the higher rates of hospitalization and sometimes, unfortunately, death. I'm going to circle back because uh, you you quite definitely didn't answer my question of if you're feeling that heaviness or maybe maybe you are too busy with everything going on. Um, do you feel any type of added stress or burden leading the newsroom during this time or are you just kind of all systems go and, and aren't thinking about it? Well, it's such a great newsroom and such a great team of professionals that, you know, my job as editor is to set the the large goal and get out of the way and help people do their best work. And so I have great faith in the news professionals who are reporting this story every day. Um, it, it is a stressor, but, you know, I, I go walk the dog around the block or I go for a run or a bike ride. And uh, I encourage uh, the, the journalists who are working so hard every day to get up and get away from their screen and go for a walk as well. Um, it is a very stressful time, but I've tried to tell everyone that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and that we have to pace ourselves. I've really encouraged people to take time off. They, some people were planning to be off for spring break. I've really pushed them to try to take days while they can. Yeah. 
And I, I think that's hugely important that um, we're going to do our best work when we're rested and fresh and ready to go again. What do you see as the biggest challenge in covering a seemingly never-ending story like this pandemic? I think the challenge is how to, again, make sure that you are focused on the right things, that you're at once doing the very timely daily reporting, and you're also digging deeper. You know, how did we end up in this place? And you're also looking for the good stories out there, the story, the stories of people helping, of going the extra mile, of looking out for their neighbors. The, the problem with any large breaking news story that rolls over time is that you, uh, you don't want this sense of sameness or this sense of this tsunami of news that feels like it's the same headline and it's not changing, it's not moving forward. And so to me, that's the biggest challenge is we haven't seen any let up in readers wanting every bit of information about this that we can give them. But there will come a time where there is a bit of a sense of overload. And that's when we have to sort of look for what can we what can we offer people that is a bit of a break from this? What are the biggest differences in how the Oregonian is handling coverage of the pandemic compared to other national crises, such as the Great Recession or 9-11? Given that the coronavirus has essentially frozen the city, state, and the country, is, is it in some ways easier to cover this because we know other news has largely stopped happening because we're all focused on one uh, overarching thing? Well, you're right that many uh, other things that we typically would cover are not taking our attention right now. My fear, though, is news hasn't stopped happening. (laughs) We just don't have the capacity right now to, to focus on things we used to, but we will circle back and we will refocus on those things. This is different from the recession in that the Great Recession was a sort of a slow-moving train that just kept coming down the track, and it it, uh, was waves of, you know, bad news after bad news. This has just been so sudden and so uh, different in the way that it just, from a few days' time, changed everything about Portland and Oregon. Uh, when you look back to January, Therese, which feels like almost a different <laughs> different lifetime, um, we were being asked to check in or, or write stories about what was happening in Wuhan, China, and what it might mean for us here in Oregon. Do you think we handled that coverage well, or would you do anything different in retrospect? I don't know that there was anything more we could have done as non-experts in the field. Um, I think certainly... Uh, the United States was caught flat-footed. Um, Oregon was not prepared. It, you know, the people who, uh, and I think we had a letter to the editor in today on this, who say, you know, we've been talking about a big earthquake for many years and mm-hmm. nobody's really paid attention and nobody's really gotten prepared. And in some ways, this um, has forced people to reckon with that, that in fact they may need to be prepared in ways that we really uh, never, never took seriously before. Um, You know, everyone's working from home, as we talked about uh, earlier, but what challenges has remote work created for reporting the news and putting together a newspaper and an online report? Well, as you know, newsrooms are loud, rambunctious, (laughs) messy, uh, creative places. And 
I miss that. I miss the serendipity of walking around the room and hearing what somebody's working on or seeing someone and having that spark. Uh, the fact that I meant to ask about this or that, uh, just the ease of staying up with how's that story coming? How are you doing? How's, how's your family? Uh, I miss all that. And I miss the creativity of being in a room of, you know, incredibly talented and creative people. Uh, it's we've tried to replicate some of that. Um, we've ha- we have twice a day news meetings virtually where the entire staff is invited as opposed to uh, even though we used to hold the morning news meeting right out there in the newsroom. Most people did not attend that, but we've had pretty good attendance with people dialing into the morning and afternoon news meeting. It's just a good chance to hear from everybody. And their dogs as well, right? <laughs> yes, and the dogs barking in the background and children's voices and um, everybody's living with the reality of how to how to do the work and uh, do it from, from a remote location. So, Therese, public records and transparency are two of your kind of hallmark expertise areas of many, but uh, what do you make of the state's handling of this public health crisis so far? What information would you like to see, would you like our reporters to have that we're not getting right now? Well, I don't uh, minimize at all the challenge that's in front of the state leadership, but I am a proponent of transparency, and for every negative that they see to releasing more information, I see a positive on balance on the other side. And I would note that some jurisdictions, and I look to the city of Toronto and Canada, uh, released early on much more information about who the person was in the sense of a man in his 50s, not an individual by name, but a man in his 50s who became ill on this date, went to this emergency room. Here is the bus that he traveled on. Mm -hmm. Here is where he was before that. They gave out really um, good, actionable information, which to me gives the, the average person more information. If I happen to be on that bus with that person and I suddenly feel feverish, I might respond differently knowing that information. And I might, in fact, self-quarantine because of that. Uh, Oregon took a different route and um, chose to release much less information. And I just think that that did very little to enhance people's feeling of knowing what was going on and knowing how the state was affected. So we have been pressing behind the scenes mm-hmm. and uh, with you know, the governor's office and with Oregon Health Authority and with the county uh, health department, some of which have given out more information to get uh, additional information released. And just this morning, we did hear that there will be an announcement coming from the health authority that they will be releasing uh, more precise information about age ranges of those who have the virus. Okay, and we're we're talking on Wednesday right now for listeners. Yes, yes. And so we hope that that changes. We hope that more information is put out. Um, You know, one of the things I wanted early on was it would be very interesting to me and I think to readers if the state would release an aggregation of symptoms seen by these 200 people in Oregon. So if people knew that 80% of those had a fever of 100.4 and above and uh, 40% of those had a dry cough, I mean, that is useful information for people, and I don't think that it in any way violates any individual's privacy. And so I'm just encouraging and and 
pushing behind the scenes for greater transparency than we've had so far. So we're making some inroads, but still work remains to get us more access to you know information that might benefit people all across the state. Exactly. I mean, that's part of our role always as journalists is to be the proxy for the public. And in this case, we are doing this as a as something that we think would benefit the public. We're not doing it just because we, you know, we want the information and think we have a right to it. We are doing it because we believe Oregonians have a right to it. You touched on this a little bit earlier, Teresa, but what are some of the principles you want to guide our overarching coverage right now? Well, the era we live in of digital first journalism, which means everything pretty much that we do goes online and then goes on to social media and then goes into print the next morning. It's just a uh, incredible rush of uh, fast paced decision making and reporting and writing. And I want us to not rush to the point of making errors. My biggest concern from the beginning of this is I don't want us to get it wrong. I always want us to get it right, even if that means we don't have it first. And so I am trying to emphasize with everyone uh, timeliness, but not timeliness to to the expense of um, accuracy, uh, thoroughness, context. We've had some really great articles that have taken a day or two days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Green, for instance, has really jumped into the research around this and has had several stories with just really good detailed information about, you know, a major Chinese research study of 45,000 patients that showed X about symptoms or why about mortality rates. That's really useful and, and helpful for people who are just, I think, starving for facts about this. You've played a leadership role or led the paper through so many breaking news stories, mass shootings, you know, natural disasters, huge investigations. But has any other time kind of felt at all similar to how we're feeling and working right now? No, this is really extraordinary in my experience. Um, you know, as you say, I was uh, running breaking news when the Thurston High School shooting occurred. And that was a case where we did work remotely. We set up a remote newsroom down in Springfield and had a team of people living down there out of uh, Red Lion Inn to cover that story. That was a huge news story. It was before school shootings, unfortunately, became much more commonplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not, it did not consume every single Oregonian. The flooding of 96, that was very complicated because it did affect thousands of people. And it was geographically difficult because it was all over the place. The Malheur standoff was complicated because it was remote, but it wasn't, it was the opposite of fast paced, I guess you could right. say, until the very end. So this has been extraordinary because of the, uh, number of Oregonians directly affected the enormity of the crisis in terms of what's at stake, both financially and physically for Oregonians, and the the incredible complexity of having to cover it in an entirely uh, new way through a virtual newsroom. Do you ever allow yourself to think about how much the paper has changed from you know when you were first starting decades ago and and 
how maybe we would cover a pandemic in, say, 1990 versus how we're doing it now? I really don't look back. I think that uh, we have so many tools and so many ways to tell stories now that it's a great time to be a journalist because we have so much at our fingertips. We can reach people in so many different ways. And, you know, when we when I started, it was it was words on newsprint and black and white pictures. We were just starting to go to color photography mm-hmm. when I started, believe it or not. And it was a old style manufacturing process where the paper went to press and then showed up on people's doorsteps. And now look at us. We're having a conversation. People can hear directly from me. They can hear from you. You can tell stories in so many ways through podcasting, video, social media, you know, Instagram stories, all sorts of ways to meet readers where they are and give them the information that's so important right now. Well, I know you said you don't want to look back, but we'll take a quick break and then I'll ask you just a little bit about how you started at the paper, if that's all right. Great. Therese, you grew up in Portland. What was your relationship with the Oregonian growing up? Well, I grew up in Northwest Portland and a family of five. And we got the Oregonian every day. My grandma, uh, who lived close by in Northwest, she got the Oregon Journal, which was the afternoon paper. And the Oregonian and the journal merged in 1982. Mm -hmm. And I came to the Oregonian in 1983, straight from the University of Oregon Journalism School. And I started as an intern on the copy desk and then moved over to reporting. And then I was the night editor for three or four years and then moved into sort of various assignment editor roles um, and just uh, kept at it. Why did you want to be a journalist? I really liked the concept of lifelong learning. It was an opportunity for me to learn something new every day, to have every day be different. When you walk into the newsroom, and we will be walking into the newsroom (laughs) sometime again. I can see it in my mind's eye. Uh, Yes, exactly. You don't know what's coming at you that day, and that's just exciting. You, You aren't doing the same thing day after day after day. It's always something new. And so I think journalism draws people who have a broad sense of curiosity or interested in a lot of things, who are excited by new things. I tend to be a somewhat task-oriented person, so there's always the next story to edit. There's always the next thing to do. And uh, I've always been a big reader, and so this gives me an excuse to read every single day, all day long. Reading is mandatory. (laughs) That's right. And I used to say when we were only in print that journalism is a great job for a perfectionist because you get to start over every day with blank paper. Now, you've been the public editor for how long? I've been uh, in charge of responding to readers through the public editor desk for mm, probably 10 years. We get a lot of criticism in this industry, some of it constructive and certainly well-deserved, some of it not. Um Do you ever let that get to you? I sometimes get a little worn down by it because I, I, I want uh, people to 
to agree on the facts, you know, that <laughs> we are in the business of facts. And when you get into a deep political season and people are very entrenched in their view that we are biased one way or the other, and I try to have conversations with people about that, I ask them for specific examples because I find it very difficult to deal in generalities And I do try to engage in those conversations, but I do get a little worn down by it because I I know that we are approaching the journalism with a, you know, fair-minded, fact-based approach. And when people are so convinced that we are not on whichever side of the aisle they are, it's just a difficult conversation at times. Uh, News organizations have been battling financial problems since at least the Great Recession and the pandemic is undoubtedly going to be causing further financial stress through reduced financial revenue or marketing. And reporting, as you know, takes time and money on a scale of one to 10. How concerned are you that the pandemic will force layoffs or furloughs at the Oregonian? Well, I'm not sure I'd put it on a scale. It's certainly something that I'm always concerned about because you're right, over the last, what's well, really been since the dot-com right. bust. Um, so it's been 20 years of difficulty in finding our footing. So news organizations in America have shifted from an advertising-based model to a customer-consumer um supported model. So it used to be that 80% of revenue in newspapers came from advertisers and 20% from subscribers. Mm -hmm. And most American newspapers shifted and it's now, you know, probably it got to 50-50 and it may be even beyond that now where customers are paying more of the bills for news organizations because advertising has shifted in the way it, uh, its model and its um, digital reach and So this is concerning to me um, just from an industry standpoint because, you know, there was research recently that most Americans don't understand that most newsrooms are under financial stress. They just haven't heard that message or haven't maybe seen the results of that. It's a bad thing for our democracy if we do not have news organizations that are robust and are holding public officials and governments to account and are watchdogging what's going on out there. That's not a place any of us want to be, yet it's almost half the number of journalists uh, than we had before the Great Recession are currently still working in American newsrooms. The irony, of course, Therese, is our readership is skyrocketing online. Um, You know, people... uh, you and you and our publisher have posted notes encouraging people who are reading because they're out there to subscribe. Um, do you see this as a moment of a potential turning point for either, uh, you know, on the negative side, accelerating those issues we talked about previously, or maybe on the other side, you know, people realizing, hey, this is super important to my life and my ability to understand what's happening in my country. Well, I hope it is a turning point. I hope that people do understand, as you say, that journalism is expensive, that dedicating time and expertise to really examining these problems that we have and solutions that might be brought to bear, or just the news of what's happening out there right now, that is a public good, and it needs to be funded. It needs to be supported. So yes, I am encouraging people, even if they can't subscribe, to visit the website, because that helps us to 
uh, subscribe to the digital edition if they don't want the full print edition on their doorstep four days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways that people can support us, and I hope they do support us. I'm going to dust off a, a journalism a 101 question for people in, in leadership positions. What keeps you up at night? It's the pace. Can we keep up with this story and what happens if we start getting sick? You know, what happens if our colleagues fall ill? That's the concern to me is the, the individual toll on the reporters working at the pace that we're working. It's not really sustainable, and that's why I've tried to really emphasize and, and be a good role model. Take a walk around the block. Take a day off. Take your time off if you had planned to be off for spring break. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of each other if we're going to be there for Oregonians at this critical time. Uh, one thing as an employee that I've definitely noticed from when you took over as the top editor is just transparency. You're very transparent with staff. Um, wh- is that intentional? And if so, why has why did you decide to be so transparent? Well, as you noted, I've lived that in terms of pushing others to be transparent and accountable. And so when I took over, I sat my top my two top directors down and I said, I'm pledging to the staff that we are going to lead transparently and that as much information as we can share, we will share. And as many questions we can answer, we will answer. I think that a void of information, just like we have been pushing the state of Oregon Mm -hmm. for more information on this pandemic, a void of information does not build trust. It builds distrust. And if we are going to build trust and have people do their best work, then we have to be uh, willing to trust them with information that's important to them. Uh, why should people subscribe to the Oregonian right now? Well, they they will get the best, most thorough, most timely information about uh, what is happening with this virus in the city and in the state. There has been so much information that has been published both on Oregon Live and in the Oregonian about this, and it's been really top-notch. And I think they should also subscribe as a gesture of support that we are a business like any other. We are doing something that is a public good. And that uh, if they think that that is valuable, then they should subscribe. And they can do that by calling 503-221-8240. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about all this stuff. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you for all the work you've been doing on this. It's been terrific. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Check out all of our coverage on the coronavirus pandemic and how it affects your life at OregonLive.com. Better yet, if you value the journalism we bring you every day, subscribe. I put a link in the episode notes. If you listen to this podcast and like what we're doing, please consider leaving us a rating and review in iTunes. It helps other folks find the show. And check out our other podcasts, Peak Northwest, featuring Jamie Hale and Jim Ryan, and Oregon Lives, featuring Samantha Swindler and Tom Hallman. Those are available anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time.